Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. feeling that good emotionally I've been in some conflict and not really handling myself very well and I let a lot of things build up over time and just wasn't expressing myself throughout even though I can talk to myself for hours and hours sometimes I'm not the greatest at talking to others in terms of setting up certain boundaries. It could be my training as a peer, just wanting to be open and accepting of everything, especially considering that I have needed that from people at times. And a lot of different factors, but I'm, I'm learning about that. I don't feel happy. I had those couple of good days and then I was taking some notes and stuff and then I just haven't had a good week at all. And I think I'm really missing my family and my community and not feeling, I'm not feeling lonely. I don't know how I'm feeling. I'm feeling like maybe I'd rather be with my family and my community than in California. When before I left, I was thinking, I think I'd rather be in California than with my family and community. And it could just be that I've maxed myself out but it's not just that because I've been struggling here because of what I was talking about before having that mini crisis and having to take Seroquel so many of the days here I've just been going through like a zombie and that's not how I thought I would have to go through my days here I thought I would have at least six months until my next crisis and it was a total of something like a month and then I was taking Seroquel and then I went to LA and did eCPR and so I started trying to take less Seroquel and then it was hard to get off the Seroquel I went from full to half to trying to go off the Seroquel completely and the Hardy Nutritionals people said those were too big of jumps but now I've been on Seroquel I'm taking a quarter now, so that would be seven, seven and a half milligrams, but I've been taking it going on two months, and I think just 
the totality of everything, taking the Seracle for two months, having that crisis and having to go through much of it by myself and just drug myself through it. And now doing the hearty nutritional thing, which I'm guessing is going to make me feel in different ways at different times. And some stuff's gonna wanna come out perhaps that has just been kept at bay by the medications. And also I'm used to interacting with people in the mental health community where there's a lot of understanding and care and all these different things. Whereas right now I'm in the real world, which doesn't necessarily have that context and so instead of operating within and amongst that context and with people who understand that and who are going through similar things so there's this mutual support by virtue of just going through it and not even really have having to say things and explain it I feel like I almost have to explain myself somewhat. Not totally, I just, I feel like I understand that I'm not in that context, so I have to be more wary because I could be, I could be misunderstood or, I don't know, it's, it's hard to explain, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but, and just not having people that know me or other people back home know me and I don't have to feel like I'm I feel kind of like things that I do could easily have more points against me than for me or something whereas in my community I feel like there's little chance of things going wrong and if they do it's not really going to affect anything because I've been there quite a long time people know me I've supported people people have supported me it's just very reciprocal and mutual and I find just in talking to myself now I'm, I'm speaking a lot of the language of peer support and so I like the way that kind of community is is set up. I feel like here some people know about my diagnosis and label. So if I do struggle and voice things, then they could be interpreted as something to do with my label because they don't know me enough to know. And nothing terrible has happened. It's more, I'm just, I'm just struggling in the scenario I'm in now and and it's one thing to struggle but it's another thing to struggle for two months and feel like well maybe this struggle would be less if I was at home if I would have known that I would have needed to take Seroquel while I was down here I don't think I would have come down here 
I was planning on just bringing a couple of Seroquels, just in case, because I really didn't think anything was going to happen, but I brought a whole bottle, and I've had to take it every day for the last two months, um, and so it's been somewhat of a struggle on my own dealing with these things, having to pretend that I'm doing better than I am around others and just go about what I need to do in a day. And I think it's just the time is just feeling like I want to go home and I feel like Maybe I should. I wanted to stay down here because there's another course I want to take in July. But I don't know. And I really wish I had a car down here. It's difficult to get around and... And I haven't done a reduction of my meds for a while. So I will talk to Hardy Nutritionals on Monday, I hope. And maybe they'll say to go down in my medications because I've been bleeding in between menstrual cycles. And that might be too much information, but that pretty much has never happened. And I wonder if it has something to do with the micronutrients and balancing hormones or something like that. So I only say that because I could be kind of hormonal when I'm not supposed to be or something. I just feel disorganized and disorientated and not knowing what I should be doing and kind of like not in a good healthy routine and I'm tired of not having any money to have healthy food I feel like there's no point in trying to be kind of healthy maybe there is but I'd rather just be not healthy and save money than sort of kind of be healthy-ish and spend more money and I don't know what I'm saying but next week I'm going to try to do some more rollerblading and and hopefully if they say go down a quarter of a dose on my medications maybe that'll help somewhat maybe I'll ask if I should take more of their supplement. I don't really care what it takes. If it takes taking more to, to, to jumpstart my brain, then that's what it takes. And I'll see if maybe I should go down to one-eighth of a Seroquel. But one thing's for sure when... 
I'm in a place of some anger and some sadness and some grief and and my mind is occupied with avoidance strategies and so many things it's definitely not in insight there's no insight there's no beauty it's just self-preservation and self-protection I guess I would like to leave California on a positive note and better than when I got here not necessarily worse right now I've probably gained 10 or 15 pounds and I'm feeling more like keeping to myself than being social and and so I was wondering before I came here if just being outside the mental health paradigm would help in terms of being able to transcend it and I'm not sure if that's true or not I feel like that's my community I went through those experiences and I can't change that and so how can I utilize them and I'm glad I watched that Steve Pavlina video about how he said when you get criticism or something you can just not reply or you can reply with a smiley face or whatever you want because I didn't reply to that email that upset me a couple weeks ago and time in my day decided by others in terms of my activities and I'm learning that just being here because some of my day is somewhat structured and I don't mind it actually but I'm seeing what things in my life I don't like controlled like food there's some parts of the food process here it kind of reminds me of being in a psych ward and so before I might have thought oh person so it's hard for me to think and abstract and conceptualize and plan what I would want to eat for the week and actually when I was back home I was pretty much for dinner and maybe a little snack during the day and so it wasn't super healthy but it also I wasn't eating a lot and I was staying slender and I was also doing quite a bit of self-dialogue, so I was feeling here. I find it difficult to find a place to do self-dialogue, that there's any privacy besides my room, unless I was just out talking to myself and not really caring if anyone saw. And that might be the case, but I have my notebook and stuff, so it looks kind of silly or awkward to be looking at a notebook and then looking at a phone. and. 
and also it's really hot and being outside it sort of makes the phone really hot and the battery die really quickly and there's other variables so I don't know what I'll decide to do but I feel like if I don't get myself together I might just somehow sabotage the rest of my time here because I am supposed to stay for six months it was sort of a six month commitment instead of a commitment to a psych ward it's a six month commitment and it's actually quite difficult as a person commit to something for six months and and do different stuff and blah de blah de blah especially when I've been struggling and having to take extra meds and in certain jobs I've had I would be able to take time off or I think I've talked about how any time I've had to take Seroquel I usually am off work those days if I'm working in peer support I I take the time off if I had my medical office job I took time off actually I actually the whole time I worked there I was fine and I think because it was so happy and and social and fun so there's something about balancing this fun thing and I'm not sure but if I really have to go back, I will go back. I guess I can't expect it to be roses coming off psych meds. I actually saw a web page for a new respite center or home or homes that are going to be opening in San Francisco called Gnosis something. And apparently Gnosis means knowing with the heart. It's Gnosis Retreat Centers. And Dr. Michael Cornwall is involved in the project, as well as a bunch of people who worked under R.D. Lang when he was alive. And so the centers and the homes, they're based on the work of R.D. Lang. And I've read R.D. Lang's book, The Politics of Experience, and it's total genius. I started reading it again. So I could highlight sections because I figured out how to do that. So hopefully I will get it together. And hopefully I will at least get somewhat back into self-dialogue. Because it could help a little bit. And even if I don't get that much self-dialogue in... It's good to do a video and talk about some of the more difficult days too because there will be difficult days in this process of coming off these meds.
and I'm wanting to document some of that. I want ice cream. It's a random rainy day here and this morning I got a text from my brain twin and he's coming up here to visit so could be interesting to see if we can do some brainstorming and he has some pretty good ideas about some stuff so again it would be awesome to be able to collaborate and not just be having insights and talking about them and I think it might also help to motivate me a little bit because right now I feel a bit like I'm not really helping myself out right now though I'm trying to come off the meds but I'm not eating healthy and having a good healthy routine and I'm not really helping others so I feel a little bit like what am I doing so if we can do some collaborating him and I then maybe my brain will be more motivated and a bit more happy in terms of that because right now I'm nearly halfway through my time in California and I've only gone downhill even though it's not really that much downhill it's just more so certain aspects of my life are missing like I was wondering what it'd be like to be away from mental health and since him and I talk about mental health stuff it's a way to re-engage that area with more than just myself because perhaps the stuff I'm talking about is becoming more and more abstract and I don't even know because I haven't talked about any of it in a week and I don't know what else to talk about but maybe I'll go get a snack I'm outside and it's a rare rainstorm but I'm just sitting on the ground. Reminds me of home. It's a rainy place. And I met up with my friend today, but he didn't stay long. I thought we'd have more time to chat. And he's doing some cool stuff. He got, he's hopefully getting himself an RV and living in a mobile way. And I think that's really cool. It's something that I would be interested in doing. At least partly, maybe living with my family and then having a mobile home instead of trying to get my own home. At least right away. And he has some other ideas that I won't talk about it yet because we didn't get to talk enough, but I feel a little bit re-inspired to get my butt in gear. And I was just watching a little bit of an Elon Musk talk and 
or interviews, I guess, and a bit of a program on him. And it's pretty amazing what one person can do. And he said something about how part of why he does what he does is to create things that will make the future better. So those things being created might make somebody wake up and be like, that'll be so cool when that exists because somebody's making it happen. And I wonder what that might be for me to do. The rain is already stopping. And then I just started watching a bit of a Steve Pavlina video. He's up to day 24 of his water fast. And I've been eating so unhealthy. And my friend said he might actually be able to lend me a vehicle. So that might help. And tomorrow, hopefully, I'm going to go rollerblading. And I'll probably take a video of that. But I feel like I could work more on my blog and... But I'm wondering what the most powerful thing would be to do. I could go back and watch some of my old videos to see if I can remember what the heck I was talking about. Or maybe I've maxed out on talking about stuff and that's why my brain is not responding so much to it. It's sort of adapted to that, though I haven't been doing it to the same extent. So maybe I'll try some more self-dialogue and see if maybe that type of process wants to be finished with and move on to something new. I just made this pasta, and it doesn't even taste good. I want ice cream. But I don't have any. And I don't have a car, so I can't go get any. I'd have to walk an hour and 15 minutes to get ice cream each way. And it's 6.48. There's no possibility of ice cream. Today I slept in till 11 a.m. Definitely oversleeping and I'm hoping to talk to Hardy Nutritionals today and get confirmation that perhaps I should reduce my meds by another 75 milligrams, which is one-eighth. And today I remembered to put mascara on both eyes, so I think I might be a little bit ahead of the game, but maybe not, because I slept until 11, and I went to sleep at like 9.30 or 10.
I'm having a feeling that this struggle might continue and it's not that bad, but it's annoying given the fact that I'm in California and wanting to have some fun. And speaking of fun, I'm thinking I'm going to go rollerblading today and maybe I'll take some video of that. I remember years and years ago, about three or four days a week, I would go to this one place and just rollerblade all day and lay in the sun and not really do anything. And that was a day well spent. And now I feel like I'm not sure what a day well spent is. My brain, I have no memory or problems with memory, so I'm feeling like I want to do something useful, but at the same time, my brain doesn't necessarily want to cooperate. So we'll see how rollerblading goes today. I'm just getting ready to skate down this hill. And it doesn't look like much of a hill, but it's still long, so... And I've never done it before, but... This is sort of the road to the beach. Before, I just started on the trail, because I had a rental car, but... And I bought myself a helmet, because I'll be on the road, and... This is sort of roller bipolar, I think. I feel like I need to try on some new avatars besides the serious self-dialogue. Maybe that one has worn itself out. And I'm definitely feeling on the depressed side, so we'll see how this goes with getting out and doing something. I just ate a big lunch, and I'm feeling like eating ice cream every day, though I don't have access to ice cream. Maybe today I'll be able to find some ice cream. So I'm curious how fast this hill will feel. I made it down the hill. I love this street. of trees. So it took me 40 minutes to get to the trail from where I was between walking and skating. So I just got the go-ahead from Hardy Nutritionals to go down to one-eighth of a Seroquel from one quarter and 375 milligrams of lithium from 450 and one-eighth less of the trazodone. So that's the next dosage for a while. And then after the next reduction, I'll actually be off half of my medications. Which is a pretty good milestone. 
though I would like to feel a little bit better, but I don't actually feel that bad. I just feel kind of blah and numb. And they said that the antipsychotic is a bit of a depressant, so doing the one-eighth reduction might help a bit. So I'm looking to, so I'm looking forward to see how I feel, and I think upping the physical activity will help, even if I'm kind of lazy and I don't really feel like it. Um, yeah, I'm at the fun hill again. Here we go. against me today. That was fun. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I feel like I can be a little bit more daring with a helmet on. Go figure.
always obey the signs. Like caution. So I made it to the ocean. Don't need this anymore. So beautiful over there. this poor little mouse on a mouse trap. And I'm gonna attempt to get him off the trap, but I don't know how well that's gonna work. But it's worth a try because I can't watch this little guy suffer. said to use baby oil, but I don't have any, so the best I have is coconut oil.
sorry little guy. Might be stuck to my glove now, though. Now he looks like he can't move because he's got this goop all over him. So I might just kind of give him a little coconut oil bath. I'm just gonna go like this and just. Get it all over. Poor thing is exhausted. He's getting a little more feisty. Just getting that sticky stuff off of him. Okay, buddy. Look at him. Okay, little guy. Okay, little guy. Oh, you're fine. You okay now? Huh? Oh. Okay. I know that was exhausting. Just putting him, getting him all oily so he doesn't have that sticky stuff on him. Oh, look at him. How could you kill this? Oh, baby. I'm sorry that you're all oily. I hope you can clean yourself off somewhere.
hard to see him in the light, but... I think he's happy to be free. Kind of exhausted. Covered in coconut oil. Aren't you? I'm just rocking him a little bit. Tell him it's okay. pretty much sleeping. Who knows how many hours he was trapped on that glue, struggling. I'm keeping him warm too. And then I gotta make sure he can walk around okay and he's not getting stuck to anything.
give him a little bit of food. That must have been the most exhausting thing ever. I'm pretty sure he's sleeping. I can feel him twitching. Okay. I see you. Hi. How you doing? Huh? Yeah. Should I try and towel you off a little bit? There he is. You've got a lot of bathing to do. You found a little place to rest.
Good, he's cleaning off his hands. He keeps trying to clean off some glue, but he's just too tired. He's falling asleep. Oops. I'm bringing the mouse something to eat. He's depressed. Come on. Eat. I think you need a bath.
He's starting to look nice and furry again. I want to make sure you're nice and clean. You had coconut oil and glue all over you. That was stressful, Moshi. It's kind of an honor from the universe to hold an innocent creature in my hands and it falls asleep. I even loosen my grip and it just crawled right back in to the towel and went to sleep. It's just so cute. Now that he's cleaned off, 
He needs to dry off. He needs to have more sleep. He needs to have some food. And then I'll find a place to let him go. He's keeping warm. It's kind of awake. peeked out and then he was kind of awake and then he just wanted to go back in again. ready to come out yet. He has his little head tucked in there. He doesn't want to come out. See you run around a bit. 
Make sure you're strong. Second chance at life. Do you want something to eat before you go?
So last night I took one-eighth less of all my medications and I didn't have trouble sleeping, which is good. And I'm just waiting for the mouse I rescued to come out of his little nook and eat something and have something to drink before I release him into the wild. I think he's a little bit traumatized. So I think I'm feeling a little bit better. I'm still craving ice cream. I did manage to get some yesterday, but it wasn't a very good brand. I don't know the brands of ice cream down here. And so I'm going to perhaps work on catching up a little bit on self-dialogue, partly to see if the process has worn itself out for now, or if it reactivates something. And I think I've mentioned that a couple of times. First I want to read a little bit of a Krishnamurti bulletin, number 90. And I think I already did, but the trouble is when I pause the process, I don't remember where I left off. He says, I do not know what I am, but I'm going to find out. Then the question arises whether you can live in daily life without any control, without any comparison, which does not mean that you do what you like, but actually to live without a single direction which is without control. This demands a skill in action, which is an art to be learned, and in the very learning of it is its own discipline. You don't impose a discipline upon it. The very observation of how to live without control itself brings its own order. And to me, that's sort of what it's like in a manic state is not having control. So if one can learn how to live without any control, then perhaps when that energy of so-called mania comes in, it won't be problematic because we already are practicing the art of living without control anyway. So I just wanted to point out that little bit because I find sometimes Krishnamurti says things that feel similar to some things in those states. I'm not saying it's the same thing. It's more the same prompting and extrapolating it to that state of so-called mania, not saying it's the same thing he's talking about, but just saying that there are similarities. And I was thinking about how I wonder if the universe gives us free will to give the universe meaning. And the universe doesn't tell us what the meaning of the universe is, but it shows us a lot of different things and situations, and then we're the ones that give those things meaning. So we might see beauty, and we might see some kind of judgment, but we have that sort of free will and it's not necessarily free will because a lot of it is program conditioning. So there's a difference between meeting that reality, the universe, with our conditioning, 
or to me it feels like in mania each moment we meet we make a new meaning and it and it gets out of hand sometimes because we see so much meaning and we're trying to make meaning and share that and it gets confused and overwhelming at times and I wonder if meaning making is a perspective it's a way of meeting life and I feel like it's possible that there is a meaning trying to communicate with us so the universe is full of meaning in each moment there could be a hundred thousand meanings or a million meanings that we could possibly pick out but we're picking out these salient meanings based on our conditioning which is meaningless so synchronicity in a way could be connecting with some other meaning synchronizing with that and that might not be the only meaning but synchronicity is a meaning making algorithm or seeing and correlating new meanings and actually acting on them instead of meeting the universe with old meanings and not acting but just sort of judging and saying well I've already seen that and I've already figured that out and then not acting and I wonder if one can in a way harvest the right meaning or at least go in the direction of the right meaning and then put some kind of meanings together or maybe dropping the meanings and always looking for new meanings and that could be part of the dialogue process too there's always new meaning and if one can just not accumulate them I've accumulated them by talking to myself and recording it, but it's necessary to keep the mind empty. And I think that's part of what I'm grappling with a little bit now is having very little memory, yet knowing what to do. And maybe there's nothing to do. Just back to talking to myself. And I'm still reading Judy Chamberlain's book, On Our Own. It's about the mental health system. And she talks about consciousness raising. And I feel like self-dialogue is definitely consciousness raising. I feel like I need to keep my consciousness up right now. And I wonder if map consciousness and trans consciousness is a type of synesthesia, a reorganization of the senses, and a melding together and a metamorphosis. In MAP there seems to be an energy and a magic phase, followed by some kind of dissonance phase, and some kind of synesthesia metamorphosis phase where there's a transformation of the senses and and new senses and new sensitivities. It's like the senses start talking together in ways that they never did before and 
they used to not communicate in this way because the self was in the way. But when the self loosens its grip, all of a sudden there's communication between other areas of the body and the being and the brain because it's not all wrapped up in the me. And I wrote something about no past or future, that what gets created is by virtue of the state of consciousness. And when we go into so-called mania, we see what that high energy and state of consciousness can create, and we become adapted for that state. And then when the energy is no longer there, and we lose that state and we come back down to the consensus level, we're no longer adapted for consensus consciousness and its division. And we actually feel a lot of the energies of what that division creates. And it can be really painful. I think the little mouse might have grabbed a chunk of cereal but he went back into his nook. And I'm trying to find out where I left off. Sometimes I write stuff in my computer and then sometimes I write on my notepad. So I'm just looking at some of the stuff from my computer and I was reading some of the notes I took six years ago when I was in my first altered state of map consciousness and I wrote down a few of the bits that I wrote down, which are interesting because they're things I wrote in somewhat of a frenzy, but they still apply today. And I wrote them down before I was diagnosed with anything or labeled with anything. And that's sort of how I was seeing the world. and. Six years later, when I do this process of self-dialogue, I look at those things, I'm like, whoa, I was seeing in the same sort of way back then when I went into those states. And I'm able to access some of it through self-dialogue. And I'll try and show the pictures I took of my original notes. I wrote down part of the new operating system is the proper use of language. So even six years ago, I had this idea that we weren't using language properly. And I've expanded upon that in lots of myself dialogue. And I wrote too much of one thing, we get unbalanced. Too much beauty, disappear into nothingness. And part of being in California is that I might have overdosed on beauty and one pretty much almost disappears in the ego sense and so it could be possible that ego elements come back into play and I wrote down satisfying psychological cravings dolls are actual sense receptors so that's related to sensitivity and something I wrote down right after that was the hit of dopamine, it keeps us in the prefrontal cortex. So I talked a lot about dopamine in the prefrontal cortex. So it's interesting to do almost a year of self-dialogue 
and talk about all these things that I didn't even know I was going to talk about. It just sort of unfolded as part of the dialogue. But these are things that I had a sense of when I was in this state six years ago. So in that way, things don't really change in a way. What I'm trying to get at is that maybe it is kind of something if I saw it then in that powerful state and I'm seeing it now through just talking with myself. And that also could be related to whatever meaning or message wants to come through. And I wrote down, see everything as beautiful, but there's a danger in verbalizing it as others may not see it. And that's kind of related to what I was talking about with the buzzkills and how we can have that energy and be going along and and sharing it and, and being kind of in that state of so-called mania and then eventually the energy gets dissipated because it's not really shared, it's not returned, those perceptions aren't returned. And it's interesting that I put there's a danger in verbalizing it and that too is related to how others might perceive me or whoever as kind of out there because we're talking about beauty and how wonderful things are. And I wrote, don't assume others will see it, just be it as only those with eyes to see it will. And I wrote down, there is a silence out of which comes sound. We are the silence out of which comes sound waves, etc., which is either turned into the noise of the ego or the sounds and sights of nature. And to me, that is pointing to speaking as Gaia, how we can create noise in our ego mind or and we can speak from that, or we can actually speak as the sounds and sights of nature. And someone who does that really well, or who did, was Krishnamurti. He wrote a lot about how he saw nature and described it very beautifully. And I wrote down a quote from chaos, a system reorganizes itself into a new higher order of functioning. So I had a sense that I was in chaos then, but that perhaps it was organizing something into a higher order of functioning. It's interesting that so many of us become so apparently non-functional, yet the process is perhaps trying to initiate a higher order of functioning. And it's almost like it will initiate the higher order or or one will be non-functional. There's no medium there. And I wrote down extraordinary growth from personal crisis. And I'm not sure if I got that from somewhere or what, but I knew I was going through a crisis, even though I didn't think it had anything to do with mental health. Well, that's not true. There are hints in there about me saying, am I going crazy and stuff like that. 
and I wrote down reality is the collective human nervous system and our form is formed by other forms and that's related to how we get warped our trajectory gets warped by other forms so that's what I have from my notes so far I will continue to harvest a few bits out of those as well I've noticed I feel a little bit non-social feel kind of blah around people like I don't know what to say or maybe I don't want to say anything so maybe it's good to just talk to myself so I at least have some kind of conversation and I'm just reminding myself to be somewhat gentle on myself because I am coming out this every day and that's my main objective right now because if I can do that if I can be off my medications then that's huge so that's the number one thing and I'll probably spend another two and a half months in California so I'm over halfway now for sure so I'm just gonna do self-dialogue even though I'm really out of the flow of it so when I say map consciousness to myself I'm talking about mania and psychosis and that's how I created that acronymia and psychosis but I would like to create other possible words to go with that acronym and I created one meaning action potential so the nervous system gets fired up with meaning and when nerves fire it's based on something called action potential which is something to do with the difference of charge between the outer and the inner membrane and then the charge travels along the nerve based on that but in map consciousness it's an action potential of meaning so the nerves aren't firing around me and the ego process but around a different seeing meaning and making meaning and sharing meaning process so meaning action potential so the nerves are fired up with meaning and the meaning comes through the human nervous system we actually are able to harvest the meaning by virtue of having the human body apparatus so part of the self-dialogue process is not waiting self-dialogue before I came to California it was just a natural unfolding process that I did and now I'm doing it to see if I can get back into that mind state but also I have a sense that I just want to talk about these things that I write down and catch up in a way so I'm trying to catch up so it's not really so it's possible it's not coming across in the same way but it doesn't matter because this is more like brainstorming than really picking out the bits that have the most meaning in a way if I ever do share any of this and and people in the mental health 
community or labeled people watch this, maybe certain ideas will catch on and certain other ones won't. And people might want to talk about certain things and other things, no. So this is more creating a lot of different stuff and not really placing value on it according to what I think is valuable to share. If I write it down, I most likely share it. And it's the opposite of what a lot of so-called content creators do. They, they really craft it and they really hone it down. And this makes it kind of funny and interesting because there'll be so much of it that it'll be kind of random to see what happens instead of really some kind of intentional thing that I'm hoping for some kind of outcome. So I'm going to focus on coming off medication, self-dialogue, and rollerblading as well. And at some point when I get over this ice cream craving phase, then perhaps I will start eating somewhat healthy. And maybe even in these months away, eating healthy won't be my focus at all. And I'll go back home and I'll need to get into shape. And then I will share that process of losing quite a few pounds very quickly. I got a new program called G-Force Visualizer. And when I started watching the visualizer, because it goes with iTunes, I had this sense that whoever wrote the program, the program code looks nothing like what this visualizer actually does. It's all these awesome visualizations going along with the music, but the actual coding for the program, if we read that and looked at that and had a book of that, it would be completely uninteresting to us. So there's this programming language run through a computer creates this visualization. And in a way, it feels like this language that we're looking for, the fundamental whatever of the universe, is so different from what that creates. That language run through the human body creates this whole world because we change the shape of the planet as human beings. Yet we're looking for something that, if we found it, probably would be completely uninteresting and and gibberish and we're trying to find this beautiful elegant thing but without the actual apparatus without say the human body or some kind of life there the language is is useless and it probably would just look like coding in a book it would look like the just like with the music on the visualizer you get this really cool visualization to watch and enjoy, but the code alone or without the music, without the life, it's just not that interesting. It's just a bunch of coding. And I really want to connect with people that share some of these meanings or share in the meaning making process and unfolding meaning. One thing I'm learning about being here is that it's actually a little bit difficult to exist for a long period of time among people who don't share the context of having some sort of mental health crisis because 
I find that there's a much higher chance to talk to people that just speak the same language. And before some kind of crisis, oftentimes we have a mean, and often in map consciousness or so-called mania, we connect with a meaning more state. So we're making more meanings, we're seeing more meanings and a lot of them. And I feel if more of us were connected to more meanings and making more meanings, we wouldn't need people going into crises to more of this meaning more. Or if life was more meaning more, we say meaningful, but I like meaning more. And when our senses are all activated, we begin enough to create laughter. So when I go home, I might want to focus on laughter and health. When I was watching a talk a couple weeks ago, there was a group of people and somebody said on their slide, something, 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 and I will give an example of this in five minutes. And just the way they said that, everybody laughed. Everybody got it, yet it wasn't even funny, but it was, and it was so subtle, but most people laughed, and that fascinates me because everybody has to get this thing at the same time, and it's funny how that many people found it funny. I don't know, it's, it's bizarre, and I used to do a lot involving laughter, and I've barely done any in the self-dialogue, which is kind of crazy, and I'm hoping that I'll get some of the serious stuff out of my system and move on to something different. This could just be the very beginning. And map consciousness is energy that's like a lubricant. It lubricates gestures. It loosens us up. It lubricates the stale, constricted ego and gives us access to more degrees of freedom. So in a way, a personal crisis is like ego lubricant. And I wonder if some of these memes might help to set some of my friends free, free to at least begin to make meaning again for oneself. And seeing that making meaning for oneself has nothing to do with right and wrong. And I probably talked about how MAP unlocks hidden potential, but then it seems to at some point retreat. And I wonder what will allow that MAP consciousness to unfold without retreating. And I think the answer is love because love has to hold and behold the somewhat craziness for a while. And I wrote down that the environment is the agent outside the brain that causes these phenomena. And I don't know what I was referring to, but I think I was referring to how somebody was talking about out-of-body experiences where people will actually be out of their body and looking at their body from in front of them or beside them and they're trying to 
artificially recreate this by probing people's brains in laboratories, and I think they have done it. And so they're saying, well, if you can poke the brain and it happens, it's just a phenomena of the brain. But then I wrote down the environment causes these phenomena in a way. Some people have this out-of-body experience when, say, they're in a car accident or something. So it might be a folded up potential in the brain, but it unfolds when necessary. If somebody needs to view their body from outside the body in some kind of experience where the body's experiencing really extreme trauma in a car accident, well then that's when it happens. That's when the brain unfolds to create that possibility. So just because one can poke a brain and that happens, probably every potential thing is folded up in the brain and if you find the right place to poke, it'll happen. But the universe can poke us too. It can be the thing that causes that phenomenon to unfold. And everything is folded up in the brain and just because we can poke it doesn't mean that there's not a congruent actuality and reality where those things happen. Just because it is in the brain doesn't mean that that's what causes it or that's what it's used for. And that energy of map consciousness moved me into a different reality. So it's one thing to be outside the body looking at oneself, but it's another to be in the body but in a different reality overlapping with the one that everyone shares. So there's so many different things that the brain can create and reality with the brain acting together. I was thinking about thought and how I feel like thought circulates in our brain because we're not learning. So when we're seeing and learning, we're not thinking about, but we're in direct contact. So when we're not learning, it's almost like the brain is dead in a way. And when it's dead, the thoughts sort of swirl around the dead tissue. Kind of like how ants will swarm around a dead insect on the ground. It's because it's dead. If it was alive, the ants wouldn't swarm around. So I feel like thought feeds on dead or inactive brain tissue or it's a phenomena that arises when the brain isn't moving continuously with the present moment. It's as if we move through the universe and the brain moves as we move through the universe instead of moving in opposition which means the brain's not moving pliably with the moment and then thoughts start because the brain isn't with the moment. And when there are thoughts, the brain isn't with the moment. So it's sort of a reciprocal relationship. And so the brain isn't really living and thought isn't a living thing. So it's an appearance of living. So when we're caught in thoughts, we appear to be living, but our brain isn't really living. So, so we look like we're living and we are living in a sense, but the brain isn't living. Our our bodies are going through reality much like animals would, but so it's interesting. I feel like there's a new evolutionary phenomena 
instead of natural selection, it's called manic selection. So a manic brain would select for different meanings than the ones that have been brought into predominance in society. And if enough manic brains can move into that as a reality, then that would shift reality as manic selection. I feel like manic eyes change natural selection because manic eyes perceive differently and select for different meanings and things. And when we're in that mode of perception, we actually get to the edge of reality, the edge of perceptible reality, because we see a reality based on our conditioning and the stories that we're told. So if we go to a place where we're seeing different stories of how things could work, we eventually bump up against the end of the world in a way. And we often feel like it is a doomsday place, but really it could actually kind of be the end of the world in terms of the story. We get to the end of the story in the trajectory of the consensus world and it conflicts with the meanings that we're able to see and make with manic perception and manic eyes and so it feels like we're at the end of the world but really we could be at also the beginning of this other world which has different meanings which could actually just be a co-creative world realizing that we're creating the world with how we perceive and act and moving forward with the right meanings which we have to continue to perceive moment to moment by really being in contact with this living thing that we are and I feel that's part of thought is the brain is not in contact with itself and the other morning I was sleeping in and I could Feel and see my brain trying to work things out it's sort of like when you can work on a problem subconsciously but usually we're not aware but sometimes we can be aware if we're half asleep or half dreaming or whatever and I had the sense that it's not that I'm trying to figure stuff out as in this me but the human brain is trying to figure something out the human brain and we all have the same human brain drop the conditioning drop the memories we have the same human brain and it's trying to figure stuff out but we have all this conditioning and memories over top of it which is messing up its processing of of life and I could just really see that the brain I was there sort of aware but I wasn't doing it. The brain was trying to figure something out or wonder about something or calculate something and it was really interesting to watch and realize that this has nothing to do with me. And I feel like we have gotten to the edge of reality. I feel like when we connect with those new meanings or the meaning-making process itself and we see all these old meanings as meaningless 
it really feels scary because we're so invested in it and it feels like death to to let go of that and I think it's hard for most of us to let go and somebody mentioned the work of Daniel Dennett and I think he talks about memes and he said that language undergoes natural selection. I think his work probably relates to this process somehow, but I haven't read it. It's impossible to read everybody's work. But I feel like the language of us manics is being suppressed by the unnatural selection of the pathologizing process. So there's this unnatural selection of language because we go into this language making, language creating, playing with language, unfolding new meaning state, and we're told that it's a meaningless mental illness and to not really go into it or think about it, it's just symptoms. And so to me, there is this language trying to arise through us as human beings because we need new forms of communication if the world isn't going to go to hell. And so using the language not as me is being suppressed. And we need to learn how to communicate not as the me because that's what happens when we go into that state. We don't really have a me as much. So it's difficult to navigate. So we need to create new language and meanings together that creates that herd immunity against psychiatry. And I feel like meaning can come through us and we don't need a me. The me is what blocks meaning. So there's no need for a self. So in a way, the self-dialogue is actually selfless dialogue or no self dialogue because if I'm only thinking in terms of the me I wouldn't be able to say 98% of this stuff because that's probably the proportion that isn't directly related to a me and I think that's part of the reason why I find it difficult to converse is that most conversations are based on me and, and it's sometimes difficult to talk that way. If I was to talk about my me, I would probably talk about coming off medications and things like that. And it's not a conversation I want to have with people right now. The property of the brain. Well, it's not new, but it's something beyond just the usual thought consciousness and I wonder how do we create this emergent property of the brain a lot of money is spent suppressing it when people go into so-called mania and psychosis and then there's the people on the other end that are trying to help people learn how to get into flow states and charging them money for it and how do we create it 
how might people who go into those states of consciousness and, and don't necessarily want to create it and surf that wave of consciousness, I think part of it is something to do with discontent in that when we go into the so-called recovery process, we're told in a way what values of society we are to re-ascribe to and to work towards fitting into that. Like getting a job or volunteering or living on one's own and things like that. But can we see what we saw in those states of consciousness and what might work better for us and move towards that and even allow those states of consciousness to come back. And if we're creating in alignment with that, then maybe that energy is served and surfed and we don't have to feel turfed. And I wrote down that words can direct our attention in that we can think, focus on our breathing and then we focus on our breathing or attention can direct words. So if we're aware of the vast visual field and we have so-called choiceless awareness, then that choicelessness picks the thing and we might speak based on that. So in that way, attention directs the words instead of words directing attention. And someone mentioned that the brain is blind to itself. So we can't feel our own brain or we can't see our own brain. The brain can't see itself. But in a way, in map consciousness, the brain is seeing itself. It's seeing all the activities that it does and what those activities are doing. And that's one of the reasons why in map consciousness we get freaked out because we can see what the brain is doing and what it does. Whereas usually, the brain is oblivious to how its activities in such things like thought are actually participating with reality and, and, and changing it in a way or having effects. Even as much as directing our perception of where we're looking because we're judging something. So it has an effect. And then we think that's just how it is and we don't sense that it's having an effect we just think that's me that's that's my life that's how it is but when map consciousness comes in there's this layer of awareness of seeing what those processes are doing and then it gets scary because we think well i'm not even in control it's just happening but that's the same thing that's happening all the time we just don't have that awareness of it where you don't have the ability to see what it's doing. So map consciousness shows us, it gives us that ability to perceive what all the mind's mechanisms are doing in terms of thinking, thoughts, words, and actions, and how it's directing that and what that's creating. And it's scary. And usually in mania, we have a time of freedom from that whole process and we feel quite free and fluid. And 
when the separation again dissipates in that now we don't feel the self as the self, we just feel it as what is. And then and in the talks I was listening to, there's a lot of talk about control. We want to control things. And why do we want to control versus play or be artful? We can think of playing the game of life or controlling the game of life. And controlling isn't really a good game. Why do we live life so much to control? And someone mentioned that it's important to have no goals, to have no mind wandering. I think it was Thomas Metzinger. And then we have contact with the moment when we have no goals. So I'm glad that there's no goal with this self-dialogue process and could be one of the reasons why I'm finding it difficult to start any other kind of process because everything else seems like a goal like writing something or or almost anything and I don't know if my brain works on goals I feel like part of this process is learning what faculties of the brain are diminishing like goals and memory and things like that and and really going into losing those instead of trying to hold on and maybe have some kind of feeling that perhaps it's bad to lose those. Perhaps if it's really lost, if goals are really lost, if memory's really lost, maybe there's some other factor that comes in that is infinitely more interesting. And I feel like I talked before about how Thomas Metzinger said that the self model ends when it becomes opaque, meaning it's seen as a model. But then the question is, well, who sees this? Who sees this as a model then? There's got to be some other level of seeing. And I think this is what I was talking about a little bit when I was talking about map and how you can see the machinery of thought and what it's doing and it's scary. It's scary to that level of seeing that sees this. There is a seeing that can see this. And it has nothing to do with the self. And I think that's part of the map consciousness, is it has nothing to do with the self. It requires a breaking down of the self. And the self has no role in whether or not it's going to break down. So there's nothing we can really do. We can just watch. There's a witness. There's a witness. So yeah, in map consciousness, the map, the perception, sees the self as a model and a dangerous one. It sees what that self model is doing. I'm jumping all over the place because I've become quite disorganized with the process think that if somebody was really patient 
they could reorganize all the videos into some kind of semi-coherent story, but it goes all over the place as it is, and it's not supposed to be linear. And that's probably how the universe works too, but we just don't know it because we're so stuck in linearity until we go into something like map consciousness and then we understand how it's not or at least experience it. We don't quite understand how that's possible, but it is. And the brain makes it possible. So to do with how we see the workings of thought in map consciousness, in that way, we're more identified with the witness. There is a witness that is witnessing all of this, but we become identified with thought and think that's what we are and think it's real, and we don't see it for the machinery that it is. We don't see thought because we think it's the me. And when we go into map consciousness, there's a witness that's witnessing this me process. So we see that we're not that, but then we feel out of control in a way because thought is normally operating and controlling us yet we think we have control. But when we're in map consciousness, we see we don't have any control, that that mechanism is a controlling mechanism and it's out of control. And so the brain sees the thought process, so there is another element beyond thought. And we're waking up to that other element in map consciousness, but in a way that energy isn't strong enough in the collective to really cause the thought structure to just fully diffuse and dissolve. So map consciousness in a way is a process of disidentification. It shows that life is in control. Life starts to be in control and not thought. And life starts to be lived through us instead of thought living through us. So it's life energy living through us instead of thought energy. And in a way, life isn't in control. Life is life. We wouldn't say life is in control of ants. Ants are life. But for some reason, we have thought in control of us. And perception, that witness, is always in contact with that reality beyond thought. There's always that witness there. But we're not while we live out our lives in supposed free will until the witness comes in and witnesses what this so-called free will is doing and that witness element is part of us and we see it too and it freaks us out and I wrote down life can't be controlled by a program so in a way thought is the programming language which we pass between each other and perpetuate. So we breed thought. And it's a programming language which isn't life. And life can't be programmed. Yet, if thought is sort of using us and life overall can be programmed, life will turn against us. And in a way, that's part of what map consciousness is doing. It's turning against 
the thought programs and that's why I don't buy into recovery because so much of it is let's shove people back into the values of society the conditioning of society when map consciousness saw the dangers of all of that so if there's an element of the brain that's all the dangers of that yet we're always moving back towards that because we're being told to the brain is always going to eventually get scared and someone in one of the talks said theoretical knowledge does not change deep consciousness and when i heard that i was thinking map consciousness does change deep consciousness we're all trying to find something that will change deep consciousness and a lot of us come into contact with that but we're basically robbed of that process and we're given wrong interpretations and made to fear it in this culture and I actually feel like this is the start of the peer potential project I've talked about that and this is my meaning action potential it's the action of the meanings that I've made through this process and in reference to this process and hoping that others will do the same and I was thinking about how it's just a world of different meanings so one is in a state of seeing different meanings clashing with a world of old meanings and it's difficult to balance both and then we usually fall back into the old meanings and have to take medication to suppress the new meanings. And I feel like there's no self, there's just wrong meanings or ascribing meanings to a center or a self or how most of the meanings we make are in reference to a self that isn't there or isn't real. So of course it feels meaningless. And then when we're making meaning without reference to a self, it's full of meaning, but that's not the way the world works. That's not the algorithm of the world. Imagine if what was valued had something to do with meaning as opposed to the values of today that are causing such tragedies in the world and I feel like the mental health system changes the map self model into a self model of mental illness and self dialogue works to change that self model into perhaps a meaning making self model and part of what makes map scary is when one can see the mechanisms of one's own thoughts and what they're doing one can now read what other people are thinking and doing because it's so machine-like and it becomes really scary and I feel like the self is manufactured it's more an entity of commercialism and so can we unmanufacture a self by continually making meaning without reference to the self. I feel like in a way, if we're able to share context and make meaning beyond right and wrong, we in a way share oneself. If we're just passing the meanings between us and sharing and having dialogue 
not about me and you and this person and that, but just about meaning in general, then it's just oneself. There's no actual center there. And I wrote down that map changes our perceptual hierarchy. It makes salient different things. So maybe pleasure was top of the hierarchy before and it changes to seeing living things in the moment and really being there with living things, for example. And there was mention of rationality and reason and how it wasn't around in the dark ages. So in a way, there were the dark ages and then all of a sudden, it developed that the brain had this capacity for rationality and reason and then that was treated as the top capacity, the most valued thing. But in a way, right now we're in dark ages again, in other ways. And there could be a new capacity in the brain trying to come in beyond rationality and reason. And I think this is part of what's happening in map consciousness, is that energy and consciousness is experimenting with bringing other perspectives and ways of understanding and and using the brain it's being used by thought in supposed rationality and reason and look at the world so it's a dark age for sure and I think something else is trying to come in and who knows if rationality and reason didn't arise in kind of this strange way that at first seemed kind of irrational maybe when that first came in, people thought, what the heck? Everyone that had, say, faith in religions and things thought rationality and reason was evil. And in the same way, it seems like rational, reasonable people think this new energy that's coming in, they're not even seeing it that way, is, is bad but it's something different, it's something new, and it doesn't exist in the majority, just like I'm sure rationality and reason didn't exist in the majority of brains at first. But now people are raised in rationality and reason, whereas maybe that was something that was acquired later on in life. So just like now, people are growing up in rationality and reason, and then they lose their minds. and appear to be crazy or something, but really this could be rationality and reason breaking down in a way. Just like maybe people back in the day were raised in some kind of religious consciousness and then they saw that, hey, these things that people are saying to me, these beliefs people are giving to me don't make sense. And if I do these certain experiments, I can show some sort of rationality and reason against those things. Well, the brain and map consciousness, for people who have experienced it, could say from their own experience, whoa, there's something beyond rationality and reason, like holy crap, and no from personal experience. But how do you talk about that, which is beyond rationality and reason, to those who are rational and reasonable and 
how do you talk about something beyond in that other language of rationality and reason? Because it doesn't make sense according to that. But people would likely say that it, these brain states are something less than rationality and reason. And I don't think that's true. Maybe it's just to bring new light to rationality and reason and not necessarily get rid of it. There's still a place for that, for sure. And a lot of map consciousness has to do with less emphasis on the autobiographical self. And I feel that's part of why I have trouble socially is that I'm not that interested in the autobiographical self. And the self, in a way, is an appearance. And I wonder if there were five people who got together who had no self, if something else would arise. Sort of an emergent property of five people with no self. I feel like that energy of map consciousness in one person eventually leads to a person being diagnosed as crazy because there could be, at some point, five people around somebody who's in map consciousness looking at that person saying, Wow, you seem crazy. I'm going to take you to the psych ward. Whereas if that person in map consciousness managed to be around five people or four others like themselves, that energy might find some kind of coherence and create another type of human that can only happen if there's five people in that state. And I think that's part of the problem of map consciousness is most people go through it in isolation. Whereas if there were five people in it together, passing the meaning together and really thinking together, not as a me, as a self, but as just one entity, then that would have a ripple effect. But when we're isolated like this, and even using our energy to, say, fight psychiatry or the system, which is one thing, but it's detracting us and distracting us from what this energy is trying to do. And if that energy can do that thing, whatever it is, we don't know, because it would take five people in that space to do that thing, then there would be no need to fight psychiatry because it would be like the proof of the reason. Like when reason became self-evident, right now that energy, whatever it's trying to do, it's not self-evident because there has to be five no-selves to make it self-evident or evident to the selves and spread the no-self perspective. So just like we have an appearance of ourself within our consciousness, there might be an appearance of something else completely, a totally different faculty, a totally different algorithm, a totally different transparent model. Right now we have the self-transparent model or the transparent self model. So there might be a transparent non-self model. But it might actually need the space of several people working together to maintain that energy and almost create 
a protective sphere and it could almost be like a puzzle it's not complete until you have a certain number of pieces and this energy might need a certain number of people to really take hold because it goes with the fact that it's not a personal thing it has nothing to do with me it's not for personal supposed enlightenment or anything like that it's something to do with humanity as a whole so the self is an appearance of the movement of thought so if thought wasn't moving if it was still if it was in a zero state there would be no self so what is there in a movement of this energy of map consciousness when it's moving through not just one brain but through five brains then what appears and in a way map consciousness releases us from the wrong meaning we've attached to the self which isn't really there and and then we're in the flow of meaning and not the flow of thought which creates the self so the flow of meaning creates something other than a self i think it creates a living being who wants to connect it's back to that altruism of seeing that we're all one and not just in words but actually and the human brain wants us to get with the right meanings so people who go into the meaning-making state are attempting to get in alignment with the right meanings and bring those back so actually the next age could be the age of meaning it was the age of reason and rationality and now we need some meaning behind this rationality because there's a lot of rational things that are meaningless or are destructive and in a way it's hard to survive going into that meaning-making domain because we come back down to this level of reason in order to bring back the meaning but unfortunately we are infused with wrong meaning and seen as crazy when really we've connected to that next level of meaning and when we come back down to the level of reason we seem a little bit crazy because we're saying meanings that have not yet taken hold of this meaningless but rational world i think that's really important the meaning versus the reason and i feel like wrong meaning destroys the brain all the thoughts in our head that are pretty meaningless cause the brain to shrivel up it's not really flowing it's not flowing with meaning it's flowing with thought and that's repeating and this is the human brain talking the human brain speaks a language of meaning right now it speaks a meaningless language and it it needs meaning Think about how when people end their life, often it's because they don't have a reason to live. So they're saying, well, I need a reason. 
but they can't find any reason. Because there's no reason that can be good enough for a life to be good. And one might say, well, life is meaningless. Well, we need some kind of meaning. We need meaning and we don't, if we had one meaning, it might be enough. And I don't think there could be any reason that would be good enough. We need meaning, not reason. I don't think that made sense, but it kind of made sense in my brain. And that's all that matters. So back to the stuff about meaning and imagine a world where kids are raised in a field of meaning and making meaning and being able to make meaning for themselves as opposed to a field of thought where kids are being told what to think, what to learn, how to learn, that learning is memorization. It would be totally different. So I feel like there's a thought sphere and there's a meaning sphere. And from the meaning sphere, we mechanistic ways. And maybe we go from being human doings to human meanings. Or human beings to human meanings. And we can tap into the field of meaning just like most of us are tapped into the field of thought all the time. And it's impersonal, just like the field of thought is impersonal. It's not really my thoughts. So in that way, it's not my meanings. It's just the field of meaning. So to be a creator, that field's already there. But by tapping into it, it's creating it in the brain. So just like the field of thought, is reflected in the brain. There's the field of meaning, which is probably already there, but if we harvest it and speak from that, then it's actually changing the brain. So the field of meaning is changing the brain because the field of meaning is a different environment than the field of thought. One of the good things about talking myself through this process of coming off medications is that I can really notice when I'm feeling better. I don't really watch previous videos except for when I'm just editing them and then I don't watch but I just looked at the picture that represents the video of just a few days ago and I look really bleh. and I felt that way too and it seems to happen that as soon as I go down an eighth in my medication, I feel like a pressure has been relieved for a number of... The pressure builds up again because the nutrition is supposed to make it so I feel over-medicated after a certain period of time and then reduce again. And it is seeming to happen now that I do feel that pressure of being over-medicated or something, and then as soon as I reduce, I feel like the pressure has been relieved, but then it builds up again. But it's good to know that this is how the process is looking for me so far. 
I don't know how it looks for anybody else, but this is how it's going for me. So I feel like it's a good sign that when I do reduce the medications, I feel better, at least for a few days. And usually it's about two weeks between reducing the dosage. So maybe I'm waiting a little bit too long before reducing. Maybe it should be something like 10 days. I'm not sure, but at least I'm feeling somewhat better. I was outside and I was really enjoying the sun and and just being outside and the flies that kind of land on me and then do this little thing where they chase each other. It's kind of cute. Most people would probably think it's gross, but it's interesting to watch how there's two flies and one will be over here and one will be over here, yet they take off at this exact same time and they chase each other and then they land and it's kind of fascinating. And then I also saw a lizard and he went in my shoe and then he was just sitting by my foot for a while and I took a bit of a video. And then when I stopped taking the video, he was still by my foot, but all of a sudden I felt something crawl over my foot and it scared the crap out of me because I forgot that the lizard was there. Plus yesterday I did an hour of self-dialogue which takes an hour to edit as well 
and I felt a little bit more energetic with it than I have in the past days. I was starting to switch over to just sort of talking about how things are going and that didn't seem to work very well. And and then I've done some self-dialogue where I probably didn't sound that enthusiastic, but part of this process is just doing it anyways, because I think that is better than nothing. And I think I was just talking about how wrong meaning destroys the brain. It, I feel it causes the brain to break down. And when a person is labeled like I was, we're told how to think about ourselves and then that prevents thinking about things for ourselves, which is something that might actually be required for a so-called bipolar brain is to continue to think about things for oneself because when we were initiated into the process we were thinking about things for oneself and maybe too far to the extreme or who knows but what I'm trying to say is continuing to make meaning and think about things for oneself and wonder and really look into things and especially wonder about our own brain is embodying one's mania. And it's part of what that energy tries to do. So in my theory or theories, by being in alignment with what that energy is trying to do, but in a grounded way or when we're in states of consciousness that aren't extreme are good things to do because it allows the brain to practice those traits and behaviors and things that it was trying to do with that energy when the energy is not there so then when the energy comes back in then it's able to work better because we've consciously practice these things in the meantime. It's just like training for anything. If we want to be good at something, we have to kind of practice in a way. And we were very good at being our old self, our self before transformation. And then this energy comes in and rips that all up. And then recovery says, go back to practicing being your old self. It doesn't say that exactly, but it implies that in ways. But I feel it's important to maintain some semblance of that self for sure, for the benefit of other people in a way, and just to kind of have a societal self and then also have this meaningful self that we felt and embodied when we were in the so-called manic state. And to me, so-called psychosis is the fear of going back to that meaningless way of being and seeing all the fearfulness of that transition back. And I've heard how it takes 10,000 hours of practice to become an expert at something. And I feel like through our life we spend thousands of hours practicing being something that we don't want to be. And when we go into the state of so-called mania, all of a sudden we're accumulating hours of non-practice. So 10,000 hours of practicing something to be an expert, well, what about 10,000 hours of non-practicing at all? It's almost 
getting rid of all the contrivances or how many hours does it take to get rid of all the thousands of hours of contrivances that we have accumulated over time. So it's almost 10,000 hours of non-repetition. And I've talked to myself for a couple hundred hours and there's also life. And a lot of what I say is not repetition, I think. I don't really know how much of it is not repetition. So spending hours not repeating. So they say we have 50,000 thoughts a day. Well, if we could make however many hours of meaning a day that have nothing to do with the 50,000 thoughts, if we're repracticing the same 50,000 thoughts, which are probably way less than 50,000, a bunch of them are repeated, then those are in a way, we're becoming experts at these thoughts that aren't even ours. So can we get in touch with not being an expert at all? Just making meaning and, and, and seeing meaning, which requires clarity and not expertise. So I feel like the 10,000 hours doesn't apply to people who live in this field of meaning. Because each moment could be something completely different. And one might not want to practice anything at all. And I feel like I need to live in the field of meaning. And when I get back in touch with that, then life has a completely different flavor. The system and the field of thought is very limited and map consciousness breaks that limitation. And anyone who's experienced it knows how unlimited it feels. Of course, it's still limited in certain dimensions, but maybe the meaning feels unlimited. Whereas thoughts definitely limit the meaning of life to what thought is thinking through us. And probably when the brain first broke into reason, it was breaking through limitation. Breaking through the limitation of, of religions. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with religions per se. I'm just saying back when the religious mind was... The dominant mind and now that's not the case and dr david bohm talks about proprioception of thought and i feel like in map consciousness there's proprioception of thought we see what thought is doing or there's an element that sees what thought is doing instead of just being what thought is doing and not seeing what it's doing when you see what something's doing you can change it but when you think that's just how it is, there's no way to actually change it. And I think just the seeing of what it's doing is what changes it. Because if people who went into map consciousness and saw the whole mechanism of thought and what it's doing were supported to get through that and move beyond thought, it would be a different story. But unfortunately, we are given thoughts to think about that process and told to identify with that 
and hold on to it strongly and believe that we're diseased and defective and not make meaning out of it and not continue to make meaning. And that's a good segue into what I came across last night on Twitter. And I don't often click on the links, but I just happen to. And I actually feel it's something that I needed to see and read and learn. And I clicked through to an article on bphope.com and it was titled Three Simple Ways to Explain Bipolar Disorder to Friends and Family. And the article itself isn't as important as something that I read in the comments, but I'll still talk about the article anyway. So the article gives three ways to explain bipolar disorder simply. And, and it was written by Gabe Howard, and I'm all for anybody who wants to go out there and talk about experience and anything in order to help people. So I'm only mentioning this to contrast it a little bit to how I've thought of this experience for myself, which is outlined in these hundred or so hours of talking. And I don't think I've ever said anything like Bipolar disorder is a severe and persistent mental illness with a 15% death rate. Typical symptoms include racing thoughts, which lead to hurried and nonsensical speech, rapid mood swings ranging from depression all the way to mania, staying awake for days at a time without tiring, and grandiose thinking such as believing you have more fame, money, or authority than you really do. And two other definitions. And he said that he was trying to brainstorm simpler ways to explain bipolar disorder to people who didn't understand but want to. And those might be good to use because most people don't have time to really go into things. But I wonder if I could create some simple definitions that are a little bit more something, I don't know. And maybe I'll be singing a different tune if I am unable to come off these medications and I go into some crazy mania and then psychosis and depression. So I'm not saying that those kind of definitions have no validity. I'm just saying that I would like to see more reframing and more meaning making and that's why I do this that's why I do what I do because that's how the mental health system would love us to be talking about ourselves and believing and to his credit he said obviously there must be hundreds if not thousands of ways to explain bipolar disorder simply and then he says explains stuff using the comments below or give your explanation so then i went to the comment section below and a woman calling herself p 
Patricia Louise gave a long response about some of the research she's done on what happens in the brain in somebody with bipolar disorder. And she says, I've probably read over a hundred studies on bipolar during the last 20 years. There's tons of info about what this brain disease is, but I remain frustrated that these studies have so few participants and so high margin of error, and then it's concluded that there needs to be more studies. And she continues, the tragedy is that this illness really could be diagnosed by empirical scientific data if just a little more effort and money was put into it. So she goes on to talk about what happens in the brain and and she says, here's what I've learned in some studies I've read during the past 15 to 20 years. Those studies using functional MRIs, structural MRIs, PET scans, and flare imaging during acute phases of bipolar. BP is a neurological illness which alters structures within the brain. The amygdala, a small almond-sized structure which regulates emotions, doubles in size during the manic phase, but only on the left side of the amygdala. The left brain, the rational brain, as a result of the size change, it becomes dysfunctional. Thus, a person has poor control over their emotions. During a depressed cycle, the amygdala shrinks to a smaller than normal size, again causing mood dysregulation. So, I don't know if I want to insert my comments during or after. She continues with the hippocampus, our long-term and short-term memory stick, also loses volume during the acute phase of the illness, especially the lower section and the tail of the hippocampus, which is responsible for short-term memory. Thus, one can't remember where he put his car keys, left his jacket, etc. The prefrontal cortex, responsible for cognitive functions such as reasoning, judgment, and temperament, is so overactive that the neurons keep overfiring at the synapses, which is the space between the neurons. The neurons are trying to transfer neurotransmitters, norepinephrine, fight or flight, serotonin, the feel-good chemical mood sleep-wake cycle, dopamine, pleasure-reward, etc., etc., because the ends of the neurons get frayed from overwork, the brain starts sending bits of myelin to the synapses to protect the neurons. So myelin is the coding of the neurons. So the brain sends bits of myelin to the synapses to protect the neurons. The myelin is scattered erratically throughout the prefrontal cortex and dorsal lateral cortex of the brain. These are referred to as WMH, white matter hyperintensities, and can be visualized in both the cortex and hippocampus. The more acute phases of this illness you've experienced, the more WMHs you probably have. They interfere with our cognitive functions. Where Whereas multiple sclerosis is a demyelinating illness, bipolar has an abnormal myelinating aspect to it. The pineal gland, aka the third eye, 
is the size of a grain of rice, located deep within the brain at eye level, so it absorbs light. It secretes melatonin in the dark, serotonin in the daylight, and some sex hormones. It regulates our sleep-wake cycle or circadian rhythm. It's the reason people with classic bipolar cycles are manic in the spring and depressed in the fall winter. The pineal gland does not change size in bipolar. It does, however, shrink to nearly half the size in schizophrenia, thus should be another biomarker for a differential diagnosis between the two illnesses. As the pineal gland calcifies with age, it becomes less effective. Unfortunately, the pineal gland is becoming calcified at younger ages now, not due to calcium, but due to the neurotoxin called fluoride. The pineal gland has the highest concentrations of fluoride in the human body, far more than bones or teeth. Two good things to say, studies have shown that some of these WMH in the prefrontal cortex actually do help some of the neurons to regenerate. The other thing I've learned is that lithium continues to have tremendous healing powers on brain pathways. In conclusion, when somebody asks what bipolar is, we need to answer like this. It is a neurological illness. It is a brain illness. If we are ever to get rid of the stigma associated with bipolar, we need to bury the confusing phrase mental illness. There is no mental in the human body. Mental is simply a function of the brain. And somebody else later said that lots of people in my country that have bipolar were given oxytocin at delivery. Not sure if it's relevant, but I find it interesting. And it's interesting because I've talked about oxytocin consciousness, so maybe the oxytocin at delivery primes the brain for oxytocin consciousness later in life. And so I tried to Google Patricia Louise to find out more about her because she's done a lot of research and that's pretty cool. So if anybody knows Patricia Louise, let me know. And I found another post that she mentioned that some of the WMHs accumulate in the lateral ventricles, which I feel was to do with circulation and, and recycling nutrients in the brain and the cerebral spinal fluid, something like that. But when I read what she had to say, along with maybe another post of hers that she was responding to something, I felt like, wow, this is the brain reorganizing itself. This is brain metamorphosis, not brain disease. It's changing its shape. If, if some kind of energy can come in and make the left side of the amygdala grow to twice the size, what is that saying about what anything could do in the brain? Some area of the brain could grow to twice the size or reorganize just like that. If she's saying in the beginning that there's not enough studies with a large population, I feel this is actually showing that the brain can metamorphose and that it can reorganize and maybe science doesn't want that out in the mainstream culture to show how much it can change so quickly. And not only that, it's saying that the prefrontal cortex is on overload and basically short-circuiting itself and I've talked about that and I just sort of had the sense that that was happening and she's saying that there's science to show that. So what I saw in this was brain metamorphosis, also 
a lot of the brain stuff that I talked about that could be possible in bipolar is is in here and there's maybe more to it and if I wanted to look into the science then then I could but I think it's kind of to me we are quite connected to our prefrontal cortex we're identified with it we're identified with our thoughts so it makes sense to me if it's over firing then our left logical emotional side would get big in association with that because we're almost overthinking so we're over emoting relating to that thinking and to know that the brain sends myelin to the prefrontal cortex in order to protect those brain cells how do we know it's not sending myelin to grow different brain cells or to organize the brain in a different way like I was talking about with the fluidity as opposed to so much energy going into the prefrontal cortex it almost tries to send more energy into the prefrontal cortex to just short it out and then to allow the brain to mutate and organize itself in a different way but if people are put on drugs and and more toxins there's no way that process is actually going to happen and I've talked about that at great length too. So to me, this post here that she wonderfully wrote, it's wonderful. I just see it in a different way than she is presenting it. She's presenting it as these are proofs that this is a brain illness. I see it as showing indication that it's a brain metamorphosis. It's turned into an illness when the metamorphosis process is met with drugs. If you took a caterpillar that was in a chrysalis and put some kind of toxic drug in there, it's not going to change into a butterfly. So what is the environment? What are the conditions the brain needs to complete this reorganization process? And this shows the plasticity of the brain and it shows that so-called mania is a hyper neuroplastic process whether you want to call it a disease or whether you want to wonder what is going to come out on the other side if it's supported in a loving and wondering way look at all the neuroplasticity happening amygdala doubling in size myelin being sent by the brain to the prefrontal cortex she even said at the end that Studies have shown that some of these WMH in the prefrontal cortex actually do help some of the neurons to regenerate. So, so if it has an abnormal myelinating aspect, it could be part of brain metamorphosis. When she says, because the ends of the neurons get frayed from overwork, the brain starts sending bits of myelin to the synapses to protect the neurons. And this reminds me of how when we lift weights, we actually tear our muscle fibers. And then we actually heal those muscle fibers because more muscle fibers are created and then we're stronger. So why don't we think that that might not be something similar happening in the brain? The brain is definitely getting a big workout 
the brain is based on energy and electricity and and there's so much more energy and electricity in there so it's obviously getting a crazy crazy workout and that's why I feel like if we get with some of those processes that are initiated with that energy then we're strengthening that which the brain is trying to create by having that workout into mania so I can't literally try and work out my brain cells I can't imagine my brain cells doing a little curl up or something but I can talk to myself in ways that I would talk to myself in those states of consciousness and one day imagining that that type of dialogue will spread to other people and then it'll just be a normal part of the conversation and then we can support each other instead of being downgraded into thinking about ourselves in terms of bipolar disorder as a spectrum of moods that goes from lowest of lows to highest of highs. That is very limited. We are turned into having bipolar disorder, but we can have omnipolar consciousness and really access almost anything. I was thinking about something in the shower and it seems my brain has been turned on to insight mode a little bit after the self-dialogue yesterday and I haven't really thought of insights or written them down but when they start coming to me in the shower then I know that the process has turned back on to some extent and I was thinking a bit about evolution and how I feel like a lot of these things that happen in so-called bipolar disorder and maybe other things are the brain's attempt to mutate not disintegrate and break down but the trouble is there's not the right context in the environment of society for that mutation to take hold so society is a bunch of words and a person who goes through a so-called bipolar crisis gets in connection with a bunch of different words and meanings and they're saying weird things and thinking weird things so it's different words and so those words don't align with the current words of society but if that brain can in a way create context create words that would provide the environment for the brain to go through this mutation or metamorphosis or complete the mutation or maybe it's just the beginning of the process really who knows what it is then maybe it could complete in a way back in the day when most of society was faith-based those were the words those were the memes words of faith that we would repeat and believe and then all of a sudden people would start coming with words of reason and it would seem out there and not right and against the faith and I, th I feel the same things happening now where something else is trying to be created that might be seemingly against reason 
or different from it for sure. So the words of reason don't match up with these new words of meaning. They don't seem correct according to that vantage point. But at some point, there would have been enough words of reason coming from enough brains that reason took its place. It didn't completely take over. There's still lots of people who are resting more in faith than in reason, and there's a place for everything. It's not really a hierarchy, but a holarchy. It's a different wholeness arising. And so I feel like perhaps when there's enough brains with words of meaning and making one's own meaning and context, it will create the environment for that to take its place. So right now, if I was just to be like, I have this brain disease called bipolar disorder, and it means I have mood swings, and I can't control it, and I take medication, end of story. Well, that's the story of reason, and that's the story of, of the science of the day. But that's not the story of my own inner science, my own inner experience. And I've spoken about that at length. And there was a guy who had a different theory of evolution named Lamarck. And he said that the environment is what creates the selective pressure for something to mutate. So the perception of the need for that trait is what creates the trait. And that goes along with what Dr. Bruce Lipton talks about with genetic engineering genes. And the environment is what actually creates the gene in the way, the perception of that. And we have to be able to see that we need that to some extent in order to create the genetic trait. And in that way too, the brain is mutating according to the needs. And somebody might say, well, I have a genetic predisposition to this disease, bipolar disorder. But in my mind, there could be a certain number of brains that have the propensity to mutate in this kind of environment where there's a pressure to mutate towards something more meaningful. And doesn't mean that it's a perfect process. It's actually quite chaotic to have all these people going into these altered states of consciousness. But there could be something that comes through stronger at some point. And I'm not really making this really clear because I just came upon it when I was in the shower and I didn't really want to write it down. So I'm just talking about it without writing it down. And I feel like if each one of us who has this bipolar label that feels there's something more to it than just this reasonable explanation of a chemical imbalance in the brain. It's the same people that might have had faith and then they're thinking, well, this doesn't quite seem true to me anymore. What else is there? And so I feel that a lot of us might have this within ourselves that where we feel this isn't quite the whole truth. Maybe it's a little bit of the truth, but it's not the whole truth. And it definitely doesn't explain all of these experiences. So, anyways, and I think that's all I'll talk about this for now, and I'll talk about it more later, 
because yesterday I came across a tweet and I read the article, it was very short, and I want to talk about it after, and then I was reading about the comments and this woman was talking about some of the things that happen in a brain that is bipolar. And she was talking about it in terms of this means it's a brain illness because look at what's happening in the brain during these phases. And I see it as, hey, that it's actually talking about some of the ways the brain mutates during the process. I don't see it as, oh my gosh, my brain's breaking down. I see it as, holy crap, this is brain metamorphosis. So I'll talk about that a little bit later. For now, I have to go. Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode. 